would you like to invest like Warren Buffett? They go, absolutely. And they get started and then they fall off the wagon. And the answer is they fall off the wagon because they don't get the temperament. And this book helps them get the temperament, which then allows them the psychological, emotional strength to apply the mechanics, the methods that we already know work. And so it's a perfect bookend to the Warren Buffett way. And I'm extremely proud of it. Thank you. My guest today is Robert Hagstrom. In addition to being Chief Investment Officer at Equity Compass with total assets of $4.2 billion, he is also a prolific author. Robert is the author of nine investment books mainly focused on the investment strategy of Warren Buffett. The Warren Buffett Way considered the definitive book on how Buffett analyzes stocks and makes investment decisions is a New York Times bestseller. His latest book, Warren Buffett, Inside the Ultimate Money Mind, breaks new ground. Hackstrom provides the reader with a deep analysis of Buffett's essential wisdom and insights. In short, the book helps readers understand the building blocks that go into making a money mind so one can begin to incorporate its principles in the service to a life of value. I recently sat down with Robert to talk about how Buffett's approach influenced the way he manages money and how developing your money mind can give you a competitive advantage, not only in investing, but in all aspects of life. Robert, thanks so much for coming on the show. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. I'm really excited to speak to you today. Well, Charles, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Okay, so what I find interesting about you, Robert, is you're not only uh, an author, and you have, I can't believe, nine books. I don't know how the heck you have the time to do that. But you're a portfolio manager. You, you're a CIO, Chief Investment Officer at Equity Compass. You manage, I think you guys manage close to $4 billion plus dollars, And you still have time to write new books. Now, your first book came out in 1994. That was? The Warm Buffett Way. Okay. And that really set the stage for our, a whole bunch of books that came out for me. So my first question is this. How the heck do you start sitting down? This is what, 25 years, 26 years ago, 20 almost, gosh, 27 years ago, and you start writing about Buffett. What yeah. new things are you bringing to the table with that book, and why was it such a groundbreaker? Well, it's, it's a great question, mm -hmm. Charles, because you spent you know, 20, 25 years going through all the methods, whether it's picking stocks, portfolio management, how, to, how does it relate to technology, things like that. And that's all we did. We looked at the mechanics and the methods, and I thought we were pretty much done. And then in 2017, at the Berkshire Annual Meeting, Warren introduces this concept of a money mine. And the money mine is a, is a secret sauce that makes the methods work. And it and, and really kind of hit a light bulb that I was only half correct in my analysis. And I needed to spend some time thinking about investigating what was the concept of a money mine. And that was the genesis of this new book. Okay. So you started in 94, 27 years ago. Why do you pick Buffett? How do you find that approach? What excites you about it? Because you've been in the business a long while. I think you told me yeah. earlier you were still using slide rules back in the day in college. <laughs> so all of a sudden, you could have anyone to choose from. How do you find Buffett? How do you get into money management? How do you start this whole odyssey? Well, you know, I fell into the money management business by accident. I actually uh, uh, wanted to, I was a political science major, undergraduate, graduate, and went to Washington, D.C. in the 80s, thinking I could change the world, be like a Woodward Bernstein, and got down there. And for about six months, I just hated it. Uh, you know, didn't like it at all. Came back to uh, Philadelphia and, and had done some writing uh, in, in, in college and for the local newspapers, wanted to be 
you know, a reporter and thought, well, okay, let me see if I can get a job being a columnist. Nobody would hire me, but one local paper here in the main line uh, said, look, if you, if you sell some advertising uh, for our newspaper, sell quarter page ads, you know, maybe you can make enough money, we'll let you do a column. So I walked up and down Route 30, the main line, knocking on doors, selling and selling quarter page ads in the newspaper, came across a company called Lake Mason Woodwalker, members of the New York Stock Exchange. I had no idea what it was. Walked in and said, can I see the manager? You know, they can let me see the manager. And I said, uh, hi, I'm Robert Hackstrom. Would you be interested in buying a quarter page ad in the newspaper? They said, no, would you like to be a stockbroker? <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it started. Uh, I fell into it backwards and went to training program at Leg Mason the last week of training. And I thought I made a terrible mistake, Charles. I had no idea about investing. I didn't know economics, finance, and accounting. And the night before our last class, they gave us a copy of the Berkshire Hathaway and a report written by this guy, Warren Buffett, which I'd never heard of, hadn't heard of Berkshire, uh, but read it that night in the hotel room. And it was the proverbial light bulb went on and everything began to make sense. And from that point forward, as I went into production, I just was like a kid following a ball player. Anything he did, I did. Any company that he bought, I bought. I got all the Berkshire Hathaway and reports from the SEC. In those days, you had to write a letter and send a check. But I collected all the annual reports, followed him, all the magazine articles. And in the early 90s, there was an opportunity to write the book. So you said, uh, what, what year was this when you went to Lake Mason? First that was 84. 84, right. So yeah. those, th that was a time period, that, of course, there was no internet. Information was pretty scarce. Yeah. And I remember reading yeah. about Buffett from uh, 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 a newsletter called OID, Outstanding Investment Digest. Oh, yeah. Henry Emerson, right. sure, I remember. That was the only place you can get anything about any investors. He used to do all the clippings and present right. it, and he used to put them out only when he had enough good information because it was, right. it was really scarce. And uh, you say at 84, Buffett was not a household name, far from it. I think there was still maybe 1,000 or so people at the Berkshire annual meeting. That's about right. Yeah, and the stock was selling in the hundreds of dollars, which was considered yeah. way too much for most people. And right. you said the light bulb went off. What was it when you read the annual report that you said, holy smokes, investing makes sense? Well, when we went through the training program, Lake Mason was a classic value investing shop, you know, Ben Graham centric. And we had these seasoned brokers that would come in and talk to us and they would all use a value line investment survey. Remember the value line? And it would go back 20 some odd years and it had row after row of financial data price to book, price to earnings, earnings, cash flow and things. And so they would speak to me uh, in all of these financial accounting terms to tell me whether it was a good stock or not. And, and I, you know, I just didn't connect. And then when you read the Berkshire Annual Report, Warren didn't talk about that at all. He talked about the companies he owned, the products that they sold or the services, the management that was running it. He talked about profitability and what they did with the profits. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, this is what it, this is what his investing is all about. You basically are buying a company. You got to understand the products and services. You got to understand the competition. You got to understand management. And you put that all together with some sense of valuation and you go forward. And for me, that was like, okay, I get it. I can do this. And, and that's how I took off from there. What do you think? I'm just digressing for just a second, Robert. You've been in this business a little longer than I have. And we both more or less follow the same path. We both all of a sudden started reading Buffett and it just made a lot of sense. What is it about stocks as pieces of a business? Why, does that, why is that a game changer in thinking? 
Well, I think it's a game changer in thinking and that for me, for me specifically and others who are the Berkshireists, the others that have followed Warren over the years, it, it makes sense in a world that when you look at the ticker tape at the bottom of the television screen or you look at, you know, all this stuff and noise about trying to predict the market and was the economy going up and down and what are interest rates, it's really a mosh pit of a lot of nonsense that can make you very confused and, and it's hard to find your way. It's hard to find your path to get from you know point A to point B because of all those distractions. But when you reduce it down to, I own a business. This is the business I own. And Warren used to say, just think about if your family owned 100% of that business and its net worth, its value was going to fund your children, your grandchildren, great grand. How would you think about it? What would be the most important thing to you? And so you begin to think about, well, I got to have cash, right? Cash has got to come out of this thing. Uh, we've got to be able to sustain it over time. We've got to have managers that don't do stupid things with the money. And, and when you kind of line it up, and at least for me, Charles, when, when you line it up in that way, everything made sense. And it was because that makes the most sense and trying to figure out whether the market's going up and down, do you buy value, do you buy growth, do you go big cap, small cap, the technicals, all that stuff is a bunch of nonsense and you don't have to do that in order to be successful. That, that's what resonated with me. Wow, great stuff. So from 84 onwards, you're working in the business. You start as a broker, which most people don't realize that a broker is, has very little knowledge. In most cases, they're basically salesmen. And that's why they have the analysts come in. Some brokers a little, know a little more than others, but brokers are paid for their productivity, not for their yeah. tremendous investing insights. Great. You, you, and you hit on the point on how I moved to my second career. Uh, because what happened... So you don't Berkshire Hathaway and I own Coke and Washington Post and other kind of businesses. My manager came into me one day and he said, you know, Robert, you'd actually uh, double your production if you ever sold anything, but you just buy and hold. And, and, and Charles, that, that was the day, you know, before EF Hutton started the, you know, the separately managed accounts, you know, and you could get a fee for it. That was long before that. And so the only way you can make a living as a broker is uh, to buy, you know, you, it was a commission-based business. You had to buy things and sell things. And so everybody to the left and to the right to me were always, you know, they wake up in the morning, they were buying and selling things left and right all day long. And I was buying things. If I got new accounts, I would buy things. If I got new accounts, I'd buy things. But I rarely ever sold. And my manager was just saying, look, you're going to go broke if you don't ever sell anything. And I said, well, that's not right. These companies are doing just fine. They do go up in price. The intrinsic value is growing. We'll be fine. And he goes, yeah, but you're not making a living. So that's when I went to the buy side. I went to a local bank. Um, and, and got a salary, uh, and then went to a small investment counseling firm, got a salary, but then we were charging a fee on assets. And, and, and so obviously our net worth, or our salaries, our bonuses basically went up to the degree that our assets went up. So that, that, that's, that your, your interests are somewhat aligned. And then in 92, we, we, we got news. I was a CFA, Chartered Financial Analyst. 92, they had the new performance pre presentation standards, and they said unequivocally, if you share in the decision-making process with your clients on what you're buying or selling, that's not discretionary track record. That's not a discretionary performance. And we acted like a trust company. You know, we were a small shop, 100 million. You know, if a client had a favorite stock, we'd put it in there. If they, you know, the kids wanted something, we'd put that in there. You know, tax loss selling, things of that nature. And so we couldn't point to our track record as being 100% discretionary. And I said to my partners, I said, look, you know, we've got to build a discretionary track record. How do we grow the firm? And they said, what do you want to do? I said, well, let's do this Buffett thing. It makes a lot of sense. And they were like, you know, Robert, I'm up to here with you and Warren Buffett. And they said, if you write a white paper or marketing piece on Warren Buffett and you get enough people to sign on to it, that'll be our discretion.
their track record. And that white paper actually became a book proposal that led to the Warren Buffett way. That's how it worked. Excellent. Uh, did you meet Buffett prior to writing the book, like personally, or you had no, you just, so you basically wrote everything uh, and all your knowledge came from public information that anybody could have got at the time. Yeah. We went through all the annual reports, Charles, and I remember I was about halfway through the book. And, and as you well know, the Berkshire Hathaway annual reports are copyrighted. And it's the only annual report that's copyrighted. And, and I, I, I could go through and distill out, you know, the financial tenants, the management tenants, the business tenants. I could figure out valuation. And, and, but I had Warren speaking through the book, through the quotes of the annual reports. And so I would say something, but I'd have Buffett affirm it or, you know, talk about it. And, and my, my, uh, my editor then, you know, Miles Thompson, great guy, uh, still friends today. And he said, do you have the copyright permission? And so I actually, I swear to God, I, I sent a letter. I said uh, to him in Omaha, Kiwit Plaza, where he is today. I said, dear Mr. Buffett, my name's Robert Hatcham. You don't know me, but I'm writing a book about you. May I have your permission to use your copyright material? And about a week or two later went by and there comes a letter from Kiwit Plaza. I open up the letter. He goes, dear Robert, thanks very much for your kind note and blah, blah, blah. He said, I can't give you permission just yet. Well, in sales, as you well know, just yet doesn't mean no. It just means what do we have to do to get this done? And the deal was this. He said, look, I got to see what you're writing. And so I had to send every chapter to him so he could look at it. And he wanted some idea of how we're going to market the book. He didn't want the get quick rich schemes of Warren Buffett or how to make a billion at Warren Buffett. He wanted to see what I did. So I'd finish a chapter. I'd put it in a, you know, in the mail, send it out there. Debbie Bazanik, who was probably about 18 years old then, who's still his secretary today, uh, would then, uh, you know, she'd call me and say, okay, Robert, chapter one's fine. Keep going. Chapter two is fine, you know, on and on and on. So at the very end, we had his okay. And uh, he finally sent the copyright approval. And uh, we, we tied up the book and it was published in the fall of 1984. And soon thereafter, we hit the New York Times bestseller list. Right, 994, right? You wrote a 94. Oh, I'm sorry, 94. Pardon me. Yes, 94. Yeah. No, Thank I you. had a similar experience because in my book, we both use the same publisher, Wiley. I wrote my book, Getting Started in Value Investing, and I used some quotes. I sent the, I waited to send the whole entire manuscript to Buffett. And a few days later, I sent it overnight mail, uh, overnight mail, Federal Express at the time. And I received uh, an email about three, four days later from Debbie, say, from Buffett, she, she typed it in email. It said, uh, um, you know, dear Mr. Mizrahi, uh, look through the thing. Please feel free to use whatever quote you used. And yeah. I look forward to reading it, uh, Warren Buffett. So I called yeah. her up. I said, is that really? He goes, no, he writes all these things and I just type them out. Like, uh, <laughs> I was like, whoa, I went home that day and I said, wow, that's something. This is back 2006. Well, when I say, it's funny, you get the same time. When I, uh, when I sent him uh, inside the ultimate money mind, Debbie sends me the uh, email and it says, you know, Debbie Bazanik on behalf of Warren Buffett. And, yeah. and, and she types it, dear War you know, it's like dear Robert. And he wrote several paragraphs about the book and, and you know, and said, you know, good luck. Good luck with the book. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. It's great. Great it's, stories. It, yeah. yeah that, that's really interesting. Same experience, similar type experience, but you had much more in depth on that. So if I asked you to summarize for our listeners in a couple of sentences, no more than two, three sentences, what's, the, what's that book that's, that, that you created, that you wrote in 1994, The Warren Buffett Way, that changed everything? What did you share in that book that made it such a, and what, what made a New York Times bestseller? 
Well, you know, at the time, you know, Charles, you got to remember, you know, the markets weren't that great in the early 90s. You know, we, we came out of the recession of 91. We were moving into a new administration. The Dow Jones wasn't doing that great. So there was some pent-up demand. That, there had only been one book written about Warren at the time. Uh, you might remember a, a great writer named John Train who wrote The Money Masters. Well, after he wrote The Money Masters, which included a, a, a chapter about Warren, along with Ben Graham and Phil Fisher and, and you know, other greats, T. Rowe Price, John Templeton, uh, John Train uh, wrote a very quick book called The Midas Touch and made the mistake of writing the book without uh, cluing in Warren. And uh, he was not too uh, pleased about it. The book didn't do very well, didn't catch. Mm. So here, here, I'll give you the quick, you know, three minutes on why I think the book became a New York Times bestseller. First of all, you know, the, the market had an appetite for success and nobody had really written it uh, yet. Uh, two, um, um, as it happened, so I'll back up. So I'm down in my parents' farm in Nashville, Tennessee, um, where I grew up and, and went to school at Villanova. And uh, I got a call Thanksgiving a weekend from my publisher, John Miles, editor, and he said, Robert, the book's taken off. You've got to get back to New York as quickly as possible. I said, come on, you've got to be kidding me. This doesn't make any sense. Hopped a flight Sunday night to go to New York, landed, and Miles took me down to Fifth Avenue. It used to be a Barnes & Noble, big Barnes & Noble store on Fifth Avenue. It was late at night, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night, cold, drizzly rain. We walked by the window, and there was, swear to God, this huge, must have been eight-foot-tall picture of the book. And there's Warren and all his, you know, spectacularness. And uh, at the top, it said, you know, it says the Warren Buffett way. And at the top, it says Ford by Peter Lynch. Well, at that time, Peter Lynch was the guy. You know, he was the greatest mutual fund manager. It so happened that John Rothschild, who was a friend of Miles Thompson, uh, was the ghostwriter for Peter's books. Mm -hmm. Miles knew John, said, John, do you think Peter will do a Ford? John calls Peter. Peter calls uh, Warren down in Omaha and says, hey, they're, they're asking me to do this forward to this new book, The Warren Buffett Way, what do you think? And Warren says, look, you know, kid's okay, do what you want to do, it's, you know, it's up to you. So we had Peter Lynch do the forward. And off to the right was a quote from Forbes magazine, said the greatest book of the 1990s, buy it and read it. That quote came from Ken Fisher, who was a columnist at the time at Forbes, because what I had done in the book was really elevate the contribution that his dad, Phil Fisher, had made to Buffett's thinking and really spent a lot of time pointing out the quantifiable work of Ben Graham with the qualitative work of Phil Fisher. So Ken was so touched with that uh, that he wrote a really great review in Forbes and they lifted that quote out of it. So, so we're sitting there in the rain. I'm looking at this thing. We're, we're, we're going on the New York Times bestseller list. So it says the Bo Warren Buffett way, huge picture of Warren, top, forward by Peter Lynch, to the right. Forbes, best book of the 1990s. And if you looked at the very bottom of the book, <laughs> at the very bottom of the window in the far right, there was by Robert Haksham, which is about two inches tall. So yeah, the planets aligned very nicely. Wow. It was very, Warren could have said, no, you can't have the copyright. Peter Lynch might not have done the Ford. Forbes might have not given us the quote. The market might have been going up 20% per year. Who cares? Uh, I was very lucky. Very, you know, it was very wow. timely and very lucky. Hey, rather be lucky than smart. So uh, that's phenomenal. So now what was in this book that was so amazing that you had all these great forwards and comments and reviews and everything and the public was very receptive to it? What groundbreaking information did you share uh, with the reader? Well, in the Warren Buffett way, there was nothing groundbreaking. And, and even when I went to the annual meeting in 98, when we came out with the Warren Buffett portfolio, because in the Warren Buffett way, it was only about stocks. I didn't really talk about portfolio management. So I wrote uh, the second book was the Warren Buffett portfolio that talked about 
focus concentrated low turnover portfolios. And, and so the story was this, that, you know, Charlie Munger each year used to tell people what books he liked. And so he was asking, and Miles was sitting in the audience with me and they said, you know, they were asking what books do you like? And uh, Charlie says, well, you know, Hackstrom wrote that Warren Buffett way. I didn't think it was that good of a book. And of course, all the blood drains out of my face and I think my career is over. And he really liked the Warren Buffett portfolio because it really was more of a groundbreaking book on the first book ever written about concentrated investing. And, the, and Charlie was actually right. If you think about it, the Warren Buffett way was not original. There was nothing new in there. What I did was simply organize the material in such a way through going through all the annual reports. And Warren would talk about management for 10 years. He would talk about what's a good business for 10 years. He'd talk about what are the important financials for 10 years and, and talked about valuation when he introduced John Burr Williams. And so what I simply did was take all his quotes over 10, 15 years and then align it with the companies that he bought, and they all lined up perfectly. So, so what I think the Warren Buffett way did was masterfully organize the material. It didn't illuminate anything new. I just organized it in such a way that people could understand what was going on. Okay, if someone who never read the Warren Buffett way or never read a Berkshire Hathaway uh, shareholder letter, you mentioned four things. What are those four things? Why are they important, and how did you look at them? Well, he, he, he distills, you know, we talked about earlier, stocks as ownership in businesses, and he distills three important characteristics of a business. It is, what does the business do? You know, so we went through the, what we call the business tenants. Is it understandable? Does it have products and services that are needed? Does it have a long-term sustainable future? Things like that. And then management, you know, well, let me back, I would say before that, the financials. And he talked about cash, cash earnings, owner earnings. You know, if you're a businessman, you want earner, owner earnings. He talked about return on equity. He talked about profit margins, things like that. So those were the financial tenants. And he talked about management. Management has to be trustworthy and honest. Uh, do they rationally allocate the capital? Do they reinvest it in the business when you get high returns on capital? Do they give you dividends and buy back stock? Or do they do foolish things like you know, buy unrelated companies? So we had, we had all the tenants outlined. And the valuation work was the dividend discount model outlined by John Burr Williams. So we took, you know, Washington Post, Cap Cities, Coca-Cola, and we broke those companies down based upon the tenants that Warren had outlined in the annual report. But it was organized in a way that we could walk you through Coca-Cola. Why is this such a good business? Two, why are the financials of this company so great? Three, why is management so smart? Fourth, then we did the valuation work on the dividend discount model to show you that Warren actually bought it pretty cheaply. And it walked them through. So we did Washington Post, we did uh, Cat Cities, we did uh, Coca-Cola, we went into American Express, we did all his major purchases, and they all lined up beautiful as you thought they would. So it was a roadmap for how to analyze a company as Warren analyzed a company. So why do you think it is, Robert? You've been doing this for a long while. Why do you think it is this doesn't resonate with 90% of stock traders, stock investors? Why is this so alien, but is so simple? Yeah, what a wonderful question, Charles. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to give you my first, you know, you know, bubbly kind of answer, but it's a great question because I think it lies at the root why there are so few Warren Buffett imitators. Um, it really isn't that hard, right? You know, we, we have the methodology down, the mechanics down. Uh, we understand how you swing the bat. Um, I, I think it, it rests at the onset that you have to do a little more work than being a stock trader. I mean, people can pontificate about the market all day long. Everybody's got an opinion. It doesn't work. It, it, it's not a lot of work to form an opinion. Everybody's got an opinion. Moderators have opinion. Financial columnists, 
tipsters, your best friend next door, whatever. Opinions are, are you know, easy to form and, and are not laborious to do. If you're going to be a business analyst and do the Warren Buffett way, you actually have to read things. You have to read a annual report. You actually have to do some work. And, it, and it's a little bit more laborious. So, you know, I don't, I don't want to be demeaning, but for most people, they're just too damn lazy to do the work to be a business owner. And it's easy to pontificate and have an opinion about stocks and things of that nature. And if you go down that path, yeah, it's easy, but you don't make a lot of money. If you go down the Warren Buffett way path, um, yeah, it's a little more laborious. It's a little more time consuming. You actually have to read something, uh, but the profitability is much higher in that. So, you know, it was Danny Kahneman, you know, thinking fast, thinking slow, system one, system two, thinking. System one is very easy. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, habitual, you know, it's kind of like, I've got an opinion. So what? Instincts, whatever. System two is you got to think. And there's just not a lot of people that don't want to do system two thinking. Warren Buffett way is definitely system two thinking. Right. Right. So, okay. So for what all the uh, confluence of great events happen, the book takes off, you get outstanding. And just, just for our listeners, Peter Lynch, uh, for manager of the Magellan Fund, I think he did 29% annual, annualized yeah. compounded rate for, I think, 13 or so years. Astounding. Um, uh, Ken Fisher's father was Phil Fisher, who played a significant influence on Buffett's thinking in terms of uh, looking at businesses and getting what he called um, scuttlebutt, asking around about them, where Graham, Buffett's yeah. teacher, uh, said only look at the numbers and all. So Buffett's changing, the thought process is now evolving, and you hit every one of those people who followed him and, 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 and influenced him directly, you hit it in the book. Phenomenal. The public seems to love it because it comes to New York Times bestseller. Now, my question to you is this. If the public loved this book and they read it, and I've read your book, I got to say, I've read your book in 99 and made all the sense in the world to me. And I've been following Buffett since 86. Like you, I mailed away and I used to get the, the, uh, the annual reports and the, the SEC 10Ks and all. And if the public loved this, the people who bought your book in 94, you had a guess. How many of them read it, said it made sense, yet didn't follow it? Probably ninety percent, <laughs> and 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 so, and, and it brings up this very, and we kind of go into it into the new book. But but to back up, when we did the portfolio management book, remember Buffett doesn't own a lot of stocks, and he doesn't buy and sell. So it's a concentrated low turnover portfolio. Today, academia, and the founding you know academicians, Kremers and Pettigrew, to call it high active share. Right? How different does your portfolio look relative to the market, and low turnover? Okay. So that, that's the pathway to generating excess return. If, if you're a stock picker and you can understand valuation, you want to own fewer stocks and hold them longer term to benefit from the compounding of the intrinsic value. You don't want to trade. Okay, so that's right. And But here's the problem. A concentrated low turnover portfolio, which today is called high active share, underperforms the market about half the time on a month-to-month, quarter-to-quarter, year-to-year basis. You're going to be right half the time. You're going to be wrong half the time. And, and so then that begs the question, well, if you're right half the time and you're wrong half the time, how do you actually make money? And, it, and, and the answer is it's not a frequency argument. It's a magnitude, right? It's, it, it's not how many times you're right, less how many times you're wrong. It's how much money you make when you're right, less how much money you give back when you're wrong. And using a valuation methodology when you're wrong or the market, so the market is gyrating all the time, as you well know, Charles, you've been at this game as long as I have. 
you know, the market's got an opinion about different things at different times of the month, week, year. It, just, it, it moves from different sectors, different companies, and it's all over the place. And when the light shines on your portfolio, you look like a hero. And when it moves off, you look like an idiot, a goat. And people have a tendency to equate valuation with price. And that's wrong. Price is not valuation. If the price is going up, people think it's worth more. And if the price is going down, they think it's worth less. And so people are a slave to changes in pricing. If you play that game, you're already going to lose money. You're already out of the game. If you are basically making bets on prices going up and down and trying to anticipate that change, you're out of the game. You can't make money. If, though, you recognize what you own has value and price will vacillate up and down relative to that value, you're not, you're not concerned about the changes in prices as long as you understand your economics. But here again, go back. Are you a system two thinker? Are you thinking about your business, your stock as a business, doing the work of a business owner, looking at stocks secondary, uh, stock prices secondarily as, okay, <laughs> there are a lot of people out there who have different opinions. And we write this in the new book. We point out, you know, you'd be amazed. People have a tendency to think about if a stock price goes up and down, it's because someone agrees or disagrees with their point of view of the stock. Well, there are a lot of opinions about stocks out there. You know, there, there, there are speculators, there's high frequency trading. There's uh, you know, all kinds of arbitrage going on out there, right? There's, there's tons of different ways in which people are making bets in the stock market that have nothing to do with valuation. And if you think you're right or wrong, if the price is going up and down, you don't recognize that there are lots of reasons why the prices go up and down. And once you then kind of bring that into your mindset, you then begin to go, prices don't really matter to me in the short run, because there are a lot of games being played simultaneously all the time. And once you begin to realize that, then you go, okay, I don't care that, you know, uh, any stock is up 10%, down 10%, whatever the case may be, you're just looking at your economic returns. And so prices then don't, don't really bother you that much. That's hard for people to do. It's hard for people to do. One, because they don't do enough work to be a business owner. Two, is that they're not confident enough in their business evaluation that they think they could be wrong because the prices are going down. So it all coalesces together. So the Warren Buffett way was the system two thinking about stocks. Inside the ultimate money mind, the new book is about the temperament of a business owner that is playing the game in the stock market as a business owner. What does self-reliance have to do with this? What is, you know, we go into stoicism, Ben Graham, you don't care about the market. You have a stoic indifference to stock, you know, changes in stock prices. We go into the history of rationalism, how to think rationally about investing. We go into pragmatism. How does that affect? And most importantly, I'll just key off of this and turn it back to you. You know, you mentioned, you know, uh, the evolution of, of Warren Buffett. We have a whole chapter, chapter three in the book called The Evolution of Value Investing. And we point out, yeah, it started with Ben Graham and then it morphed to Phil Fisher and that got you Coca-Cola. Stage three value investing, which Warren has now finally got his uh, toho into, is the valuation of network economics. You know, how do you think about technology? Apple. It was Warren's, you know, move into it kind of bridged, you know, the second level of evolution in value investing and the third level, which is both a great consumer products company, but it's a technological network economics business. And we walk everybody through it. So here's the point. You know, valuation migrates. It evolves. It changes. And Buffett is the only person that I know that is. Well, that's not true. Bill Miller also did it at like Mason Capital Management, got from Stage one value investing, ben, ben Graham got to stage two value investing with Phil Fisher and Coca-Cola and all that, John Burr Williams, then made it to stage three, where he's now buying network economic businesses. 
Um, and so very rare for someone to make that evolutionary change. Bill Miller did it successfully. Warren Buffett did it successfully. And if you're going to be a, a great value investor today, you have to evolve along with it. Right. Yeah. No, yeah, I think you're spot on. I think the, just, just for our listeners, Ben Graham, just to review, his, he looked at the numbers of a business. And he basically said, this is the book value of a business. The stock selling for less than the book value of the business, therefore, was a buy. And that was a time right after the Depression. So you can't find many businesses today that sell below book value. And book value doesn't mean much anymore because most of a company's uh, assets are their intellectual property. Coca-Cola's exactly. brand name, for example, just to use a classic yeah. example. The company's worth X, but just that name is worth everything. How do you, you know, that's an evaluation. It's not a steel mill. Uh, you mentioned step two, uh, um, uh, stage two thinking was not only look at the numbers, but asking around the suppliers, the wholesalers, the customers, getting that scuttlebutt. Uh, yeah. as, as Peter Lynch talked about, you ask people in the parking lot about cars they drove and got information that way. Yeah. Stage three, which you I just... Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Charles. Go ahead. No, and, and stage three, which you just mentioned with uh, Bill Miller and, and Buffett as well. If you don't get Bill Miller is a value investor. Let me define what value investing is. It's basically getting more than you pay. And most people equate it with book value. It's so silly. It's yeah. so silly. They're frozen in time. But Bill Miller was buying Amazon. Yeah. And if you looked at Amazon back in the day when he was buying it, there were no earnings to speak of. I don't think there were any earnings. He was, you know, yeah. Bezos was throwing money back into the business. I think he also bought Google at the uh, IPO. Bill yeah, Miller, we did. Right? Yeah. Bought it there uh, where any value, any traditional, or I shouldn't say traditional, any stage one value investor would say there are no earnings, there's no book value, there's no this, no that. So I, I think that's a key point that you bring up here now where it's stage three, where the valuation is based on non-traditional ways of looking at things and trying to figure out X for the future and seeing what's there today. For example, I'm using an example now, eBay or, or, uh, or Apple. These are networks that are there that you're tied into that are going to make money time over time because it's so hard for competitors to get into that. Charles, you are 100% spot on. You couldn't have said it better. And I worked with Bill Miller for 15 years. And so, and I, and I acknowledge him in the book, you know, I acknowledge Warren Buffett and I acknowledge Charlie Munger, but I said, there was no more, no one person more important to me that moved me from the, the theoretical, which is the Warren Buffett way, to the practical, which is actually investing in it, than Bill Miller. I ran his growth fund while he ran the famous Lake Mason Value Trust. The Lake Mason Value Trust outperformed the market, the S&P 500, for 15 years in a row, starting in 1991. And he had already moved to stage two value investing and was owning a lot of consumer products and things like that. But he was the, one of the very first value investors that moved into stage three. His very first big bet was Dell Computer that started out looking like a value stock, but became a phenomenal growth stock that he made 8,000% at 45 times earnings. Um, you know, so he had that, he had AOL, you know, he, you know, it's 50 times his original investment. We owned Amazon when we bought Amazon on the IPO. And I was with him uh, when we were there, we bought Amazon, not because Amazon looked like a Barnes and Noble or Walmart, Amazon was Dell Computer. Amazon was a direct distributor of books, just like Dell Computer was a direct distributor of personal computers. They all had the same recipe business model. It was negative working capital. They didn't have to put money into the business because they could run the business off the accounts receivables of the consumers who bought the computers at Dell Computer or the books at Amazon over the internet or the phone. They had your credit card that night. 
they didn't have to pay the supplier for 30 to 60 days. Right. So they ran it off the balance sheet, not the income statement. So when we hit the home run in Amazon and we had to suffer through, you know, 2000, it was a mess. Uh, the, the people had the descriptions wrong. We talked about in the book, the philosophical challenges that, that, you know, get too far off the reservation, but Ludwig Wittgenstein, a great Austrian philosopher, and we talk about, you know, this is why it's important to have the right temperament, talked about the, the philosophy of language. The words that you choose, you know, form a description that ultimately becomes your explanation. Well, if you have the wrong description, you have the wrong explanation. And everybody thought that Amazon was Barnes and Noble and said, well, you should, you know, sell Amazon by Barnes and Noble. Well, that didn't work out well. Then they later said, no, it's Walmart. So you should do a pair trade, sell Amazon and, and go long Walmart. Well, that didn't work out well. Bill, though, when we sat down and looked at it, said, you know, that's neither one of them. It's Dell Computer. And when we understood that, we knew we were home free. And I think when I wrote, wrote in the book from the time of its IPO up and through 2018, because we hadn't finished it, it was up like 2,750% versus the market up 200%. And everybody had been saying all along, it always loses money. It doesn't lose money. I think it barely loses you know, any money in the early years. And we talk about that in the book. Today, do you know, and you get any analyst that follows the company, if you take the operating cash flow, that is he has revenues coming in, he has expenses that come in, and then you get a decision. You can either report it as EPS and pay the tax, or you can put it back in the business, right? Well, it earns you know well over 100% return on invested capital, growing at 20% per year. What should you do with the cash if you're a business owner? <laughs> put it right back in the business, right? Don't drop it to the bottom line on EPS. Right, Robert, just let me, explain, let me explain that for those who are not in the business. What okay. you're basically <laughs> saying is if you have a lemonade stand, and you take the earnings of that business, you have a choice what to do with that. You could take that out, put it in your bank account, go on a nice cruise when cruises are available yeah. one day, or go buy yourself a new house or a mink coat for your wife or whatever it might be. Or take that money, reinvest it in more lemons so you could open up more lemonade since because you're making a lot of percent on that business. That's yep. what Amazon was doing. They were taking that money and rolling it into more business because that money kept making money and was much better in the hands of Bezos expanding his business and growing his business than it would have been paying out as earnings or dividends or anything to that effect. What a terrific analogy. You couldn't, I couldn't have said it better. So what do you want Jeff Bezos to do? I just want him to keep growing the business, right? And he does AWS. So keep it all. So everybody looks at it has no earnings. Well, it has a hell of a lot of earnings. It just, he didn't drop it to the bottom line. He put it back in the business because it was growing at a double-digit rate, earning 100% return on capital. That's exactly what you want to do. So, so, so if you think about it from, as a business owner, you go, <laughs> makes perfect sense to me. And, and the question is, if the question yeah. is, I'm sorry to interject, if, the, if he ever sent the money back home to you, yeah. first question yeah. we ask is, whoa, the business hit a tipping point. If he's able to generate such a high return running the business, what am I going to do with it with making 3 4% in the bank back in the day? Yeah. I want him to well, have that money. If he sent it back to me, bucket loads, and, and then we'd have a great price earnings multiple and everybody would be happy, I'm thinking he's run out of opportunity to reinvest right. the money. Right. So as a business owner, I'd go, so the market thinks, oh, now it's an attractive investment because it has a low multiple because it's reporting all the EPS. Very, very solid insight there, Charles. But for me, I don't want him to report EPS. I want him to keep him put it back into the company so he compounds intrinsic value. And that's the essence of Berkshire Hathaway. Berkshire Hathaway is a compounding intrinsic value business. It owns compounding businesses. That's what it does. So when you, when you have your business mindset on, the world makes a lot of sense, but it doesn't make sense 
in the market zone that looks at stock prices short term, looks at short term performance, look at EPS all the time and low multiples. That's not the game right. that you're going to win. That's a hard game. So, you know, when you mentioned that, you know, once you once you put semantics, right, once you call something something uh, a name, you kind of lock into it, anchor into it. Yeah, it's really not value investing. It's I, I don't never consider it value investing. I consider it rational or intelligent investing, yeah. because as Munger said, all investing is value investing. You, exactly. you never want to buy something uh, uh, above what it's worth and sell it, hopefully higher, because that doesn't always work. Same way you buy yeah. a house. You don't want to buy a house that you know the price. You research the price. You want to buy that house as low as possible to the market price. If the house yeah. is going for a million dollars on the street, if you could buy it for $600,000, you get a fantastic deal, not a terrible yeah. deal. And I, yeah. I think that's the problem. I think it's one of the problems of, of most people when it comes to, and I use air quotes here, value investing. They just get anchored to that. They think back to 1930 of Ben Graham looking at old dying companies being sold for scrap and their scrap was worth more. And they don't do, as you mentioned, the stage two or level two thinking and just move on and pick the stock or company that doesn't have any earnings, doesn't have any money, just yeah. has a great story. Yeah, and we, you know, it's, it's, you hit it on it to two very important parts. You know, that was cigar butt investing that, that Ben Graham did. You remember, he just he bought, liked to buy things so cheap that he didn't think they could go down anymore. But the problem is, as Warren found out over time, it worked well in his partnership days from 56 to 69. But when he started compounding money at Berkshire, buying and holding cigar butt companies, you can't make money. You, you are long-term owning the economics of a poor business. That's what moved him off to buying C's candy and then ultimately Coca-Cola and stage two value investing. But to your point, you know, the point that really resonates with me about all value investing is intelligent value investing. If I hear one more value investor tell me, you know, as soon as value investing comes back, I'm going to start to make money again. It is an open admission that you don't understand value investing because as Bill Miller points out, there's a lot of value in high multiple stocks. Warren Buffett would tell you, it's not high PE, low PE. It is cash returns on invested capital and the sustainability of that. So if, if, you, if you tell me that I'm going to be successful again as a value investor as soon as value investing comes back, it's an open admission that you have a very narrow view of what value investing is. And if you think it's just low multiple stocks waiting to come back, well, for the last 10 years, as you rightly pointed out, it has done awful because the economics of intangible investing brand value and now, you know, software and the new network economic businesses of level three, which don't show up in price earnings multiples, are worth a lot more than the low multiple, you know, brick and mortar businesses that the classic value stocks are waiting to come back. Now, to the point, and your listeners will say, well, value is working out pretty well. And, and you are getting a rotation in the market as we're reflating back from the recession and value got oversold and growth got a little extended. But you got to figure out when to trade it, right? Because you don't want to buy and hold value forever once it's fairly priced because you're then left with the mediocre economics of those businesses. So we've got a little rotation in the market. I've been through them before. You have too. We'll get through it. But at the end of the day, it's the economics of your business that will determine your long-term net worth unless you're a trader. So you got to figure out, am I either a trader or I'm an investor? And a lot of people today, as we pointed out, Charles, are still trading stocks, not investing in stocks. Yeah, I, I always tell my readers that the... The stock price follows the underlying worth of the business, not the other way around. If you Absolutely. Have a, if you have a, and, and that's why I always love buying businesses that are solid, that have solid financials, because 
if you're right on management, you're right on the industry, you're right on the business, and even if you're wrong on the stock price, you won't get hurt over the long term. As long as you don't overpay. Exactly. Yeah, even exactly. if even I want to say even if you do overpay, you're not going to be left with zero. There's some intrinsic yeah. value to the, if you don't do something silly and pay 20 times or a ridiculous amount. Yeah. But the point is, is that if you miss, you're not going to miss big. But if yeah. you buy a business which has great management, credit industry, all these things working, yet the business is severely in debt. It's drawing on credit lines. It doesn't have any cash. It doesn't. Your margin of safety is so thin that you're going down to really praying for a miracle and every day you're just happy to be in business. And those, yeah. I don't care what price you paid for that. It's much easier to jump over a one-foot hurdle by buying a business that's financially sound and start off from that basis. And that's what I basically tell my readers all the time. If you had one thing to do and do right, buy financially sound businesses and pay yeah. a fair price. Odds are you're not going to get smashed. The other way around yeah. is going to be black or red. You might win, you might lose. Uh, but uh, odds are you're not going to walk out a consistent winner by any stretch yeah. of the imagination. Brilliantly said. I, I couldn't say it better, Charles. So sum up for me in, in just a, a few sentences here. Your new book, why, I, I just, just saw it on Amazon, phenomenal reviews so far. You got really a lot of smart people wrote great testimonies for you. I know you can't buy those at all because they're not giving up their names for a couple of dollars or just a mention in your book. Tell me why I should run out and get this book after I read everything about Buffett, I know about investing, why do I need this book? Well, the biggest difference between, you know, the Warren Buffett way and the new book is, is that Warren Buffett way is a method book. This is a thinking book. Um, we, we have a tendency, we want method books to tell us how to do something, but there's a temperament that you have to have in order to be successful with a method book. This is about temperament. It's about the philosophy that Warren uh, grew up with from his dad, you know, his dad who he loved, uh, you know, meant the world to him, taught him about self-reliance from Emerson, stoicism from Ben Graham, rationality from Charlie Munger, pragmatism. We go all through that. We go through the evolution of value investing. How to think about that changes over time. Importantly, we go in contrast standard money management today, active money management defined by modern portfolio theory. What are the weaknesses there? Why doesn't it work long term relative to what Warren does? And in the last chapter, which is my favorite chapter, chapter six, is a sportsman, a teacher, and an artist. It talks about investing from an athletic standpoint. How do you compete? How do you compete well? What is the difference between process and outcome? The role that teaching plays. Those who teach about investing get smarter. Warren's been teaching about investing since 1955. Uh, there's no doubt that his teaching over the years, whether when he first started writing a column in the Omaha World Herald to the Berkshire Partnership letters to all up to today, teaching makes you smarter. And he's been a devoted teacher and people that follow Warren, you know, you know, love his teachings. And then lastly, an artist. I mean, he, he, he thinks about Berkshire Hathaway as the Sistine Chapel. And, and he goes in and paints the Sistine Chapel every day. If you think about Berkshire Hathaway, you know, Warren is the artist. He has a, a brush that has pigment, which is his capital. <laughs> and he paints every day and, and, he's, and he's done some wonderful things. So it's really philosophical temperament, but those it is absolutely essential that you have to have that combined with the methods in order to be successful in the Berkshireist approach to investing. And I'm so proud of this book. I, I, I'm just a dunce, uh, Charles, that it took me so long to figure out uh, that I underweighted temperament and overweighted mechanics. And if I'd have been smarter about it 10 or 15 years ago, I would have said, yeah, we got the mechanics, but we've got to get this temperament part right. 
I was slow to figure it out, but when Warren mentioned it uh, three years ago in 2017, I went, you know, he's exactly right. And, and, and I'll leave you with this. People who don't, uh, that like to say, if I said, would you like to invest like Warren Buffett? They go, absolutely. And they get started and then they fall off the wagon. And the answer is they fall off the wagon because they don't get the temperament. And this book helps them get the temperament, which then allows them the psychological, emotional strength to apply the mechanics, the methods that we already know work. And so it's a perfect bookend to the Warren Buffett way. And I'm extremely proud of it. Thank oh, you. Outstanding, outstanding. Which, you know, temperament is the key. And I think you said this so many years ago that uh, if there's one trait that every that you could tell a good investor from a bad one, it's temperament. And the temperament Absolutely. just divine is when market when prices go against you and your work is right, you don't panic and sell into down markets and you don't get giddy in up markets. And uh, when I had interns, when I run my money management firm, my hedge fund, I knew right off the bat how good an intern would be. When I asked for their brokerage statement, I'd ask, let me see during a down period of time. And if you see hyperactivity of selling during a bit, there's just no way that person's ever going to change. If you're That's selling right. when prices, if you, if you could look and keep an even keel when prices are down and get excited about it because now you're able to buy, buy bargains. And when prices are up and everyone's dancing in the street and you say, that's the time I take some chips off the table, you'll, be, you'll do well. Other than that, yeah. you got you to really, uh, you're, you're, pushing a, you're pushing a boulder up the hill. It gets, it's, yeah. it's harder than that. Uh, Robert, I want to thank you, man. Wish you continued success. Outstanding book. And what, you, and what people don't realize that you also have a day job. So you're also managing money, and that is a full-time job, especially the way you do it, reading 10Ks, annual reports, speaking with management, and you have time to write this, and you do a tremendous service uh, to the investment community and someone just starting out. You know, they could take your book right off the shelf, which took you 27 years to figure out. Here it is. It's, I think it's cheap price for the price of an Amazon, a book on Amazon. Well, Charles, thank you for the invitation. I, I would tell you, this is my first interview for the book, and I couldn't have picked a better person <laughs> to have that interview with. It has been terrific. Uh, you, you asked all the right questions. It was a wonderful conversation. This hour went by in a blink. I had so much fun. Thank you. Absolutely. I feel the same. Robert, thanks so much for being on the show. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on The Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.